You're listening to a sermon originally recorded by Schweitzer United Methodist Church in Springfield, Missouri. Check us out online at sumc.co. And if this sermon blessed you, be sure to share it with someone else. Thank you so much for listening. Now, on to the message. It's great to see you today. I don't know about you. I don't know if you were expecting this snow. Um, some of you, I know you, you watch the weather like your, your hawks. My parents uh, are, are the kind of people that do that. My dad always did that, so I never did. So I woke up this morning, went about my normal routine, walked outside to, go, to come here, and I'm like, it snowed! And I was like a kid on Christmas morning. I loved it. I'm, uh, I'm really, I, I really do. I just, I'm like, it snowed, and this is, this is fantastic. And so we're supposed to talk about anger, but I'm so happy. I don't know if I can, can I do that? Okay. A few years ago, I was in a, a different situation, <coughs> different setting, I should say, not situation, different setting. I was on a beach in Southern California. It's different, yeah. And uh, definitely a different place, different setting. Looking out at the Pacific Ocean, it was nighttime. And I was with a professor, and we were gathered around a fire. And the subject for that night, for that, for that teaching, was how do you write a dissertation? Now, the first thing the professor said to us, he said, you have to, you have to come up with an answer to this question. And the question is, what makes you angry? If you want to know the, the other things that the professor said, buy me a ticket, I'll take you to Southern California, and I'll unpack the rest of the the talk there on the beach. But the first thing he said was, what makes you angry? I had never thought about anger as something that was a force that could be used for good. I'd never thought about anger as something that people who follow after Jesus could actually be or or be a part of, that, that they could express anger. Anger gets expressed in a lot of different ways. Sometimes it comes out as a meltdown. Sometimes it's revenge, sometimes it's malicious. Most of the time in my life before I really heard the voice of Scripture speaking to me, I wouldn't revert to meltdowns, but I could be very revengeful or malicious. I could wait for somebody to have their own comeuppance and then have some joy within that moment of time. But as I listened to Jesus, as I walked with Jesus, as I read Scripture, I thought anger is one of those things that that we're supposed to divest ourselves of. We at least keep anger hidden if we don't, at some point, hope for anger to be something that's eradicated completely from our life. I was surprised when this professor said, what are you angry about? I'd read texts similar to what Paul wrote here in Ephesians 4 when Paul in verse 426 says, don't sin by letting anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. So I thought, whatever it is that may cause you anger, you're supposed to deal with quickly, right? You don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. And then he says, get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, and slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. Instead, be kind to each other, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. I thought anger, reading a text like that or other texts, proved to be at through my own experience and then through how scripture, at least in some text, indicated that 
anger itself was the root of all kinds of trouble. And so where Paul says, don't sin by letting anger control you, could have looked in one mind, in, in, in one sight, like don't sin by getting angry. But the reality is, is Paul isn't saying don't sin by getting angry. He's saying don't let sin, or don't sin by letting anger control you. It isn't so much that anger itself is the sin, but it's what comes out of anger. What, what steps we take out of it. Anger, because anger is an emotion, right? Anger is an emotion that, that you can be moving along in your day and something happens and you don't see it coming, but anger, anger greets you. It can happen when you're, when you're wounded. It can happen when you're surprised. I think last night, I think I, I bumped Anna in the head with my arm or elbow, you know, and, and uh, I don't know if that ever happens to you if you've got a spouse, but you can like, man, that just, there's just something sort of instantaneously that just rises up. Like, I think I'm a little mad right now, just for a moment. But anger can be something that's even beyond that, further than that. Anger can rise up within you when you think about something for a long period of time, when you see an injustice, when you see things that aren't right. And the real question, the real point that Paul is taking us to is asking us the question, what do we do with that anger? Jesus himself gets angry. What do we do with the anger? Most of us, what do we do? Most of us respond in one of, in one of a couple of ways. Some of us are like skunks. I've come to appreciate the uh, depiction from Pastor Bob that many of us respond when we're anger like skunks or turtles. Uh, when, when we have that emotion rise up within us or we have that experience, we're like a skunk and we spray. We let people know that we're anger. That we're, that we're angry. And we let everybody know. It's not just one person or one incident, but we let everybody know. We'll be indiscriminate in our expression of anger. Except sometimes when we're like that, we oftentimes don't address the thing that, that brought us to that place or the person that brought us to that place, right? Everybody else can receive our wrath or our expression except the person themselves. And then some of us, are like turtles when we get angry. We retract, we pull in, we disengage. We kind of sit on things, we stew on things. In some ways, we're almost like grapes that get put into the process of wine, except when we retract as turtles, we don't ferment and come out smelling or tasting good. But we come out, when we do, we come out like and there's a toxicity to us. There's a toxicity that we spread to other people when we become angry and we retract. Because at some point, it has to come out. At some point, it has to express itself. So I have a question to ask you. What are you angry about? What's deep down inside of you that, that angers you? You say, well, I don't know if I can really be honest about that. I don't know if we can really say that in this place. Well, friends, the truth of the matter is that our culture is angry, isn't it? The world in which we live in. 
And it's not just the culture, but all of us live in the culture. All of us participate in the culture. All of us speak into the culture. So what are we angry about? What's our culture angry about? Let me ask you another question. Is there ever a righteous anger? Is there an anger that rises up within you that's there, present with you, that's, that's righteous in a, in a way? The book of Ephesians, some have suggested, is one of the Apostle Paul's best works of, of theological pastoral composition that we can encounter, that we can find. I know a lot of people like the book of Romans, and they think that Romans is the, the creme de la creme. But some who've read through the, the book of Ephesians said this is where Paul puts it together, and he does it in a short way. And love, you can't, in a couple of weeks, we're going, to hear about, we're going to hear about love and the prayer for love that he, that he has for us in Ephesians 3 when he says, I hope that you know and experience the great expanse of God's love. But one of the things that we have to sort of draw back on is we've got to get context. When the Apostle Paul writes the book of Ephesians, he does so from a prison cell in Rome or maybe a house where he's under house arrest. He got to that place of writing the book of Ephesians under house arrest because he was arrested in Jerusalem. He was arrested in Jerusalem for a couple of reasons. One, he had uh, taken an offering to a city that was undergoing great famine. Now, if you take an offering, if you work um, with all of your resources to raise funds for somebody and you take those funds and you deliver those funds, most of us would expect that we'd be given a thank you note or a thank you of some kind. The Apostle Paul, when he went into the temple, and it was assumed or thought by some people that he went into the temple with a Gentile, with somebody who wasn't a Jew. When he went into the temple, he was arrested. And there were a number of people in Jerusalem who were arrested in the temple for such a cause that had been put to death, summarily put to death, very quickly. And yet Paul, Paul had just a bit of an opportunity to speak, and he spoke. And then he appealed to Caesar and he wound up finding his way to Rome. And he wrote to this church, to a number of churches. In the background, being in a place where he is because there are religious prejudices. Not just religious prejudices, but prejudices over race that caused him to be in the place where he's at. And so he takes up a pen and a parchment to write to a group of people in a church that he's been to that are experiencing some of the same issues, some of the same racial divide that, that he's seen all across Asia Minor and in Jerusalem. In Ephesians 2, this is what he says. Don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders. You were called uncircumcised heathens by the Jews who were proud of their circumcision, even though it affected only their bodies and not their hearts. In those days, you were living apart from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel, and you did not know the covenant promises of God that God had made to them. You lived in this world without God and without hope, but now you have been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far away from God, but now you have been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. For Christ himself has brought peace to us. 
He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He did this by ending the system of law with its commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from the two groups. Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross, and our hostility toward each other was put to death. He brought this good news of peace to you, Gentiles, who were far away from him, and peace to the Jews who were near. Now all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. As I read through that text, as you listen to that text, does the text seem something that's locked away in the days gone by? Or does that text live and does that text speak into the, into the very place where we're at today? Do we have racial divide in our own country, in our own land? Do we have people who wonder if they can come to the Father with people who are from different ethnic classes or racial classes or economic classes? Paul, as he thinks about all of the places he's been and as he, as he thinks about the work of Christ, where he said, look, in verse 14, he said, look at what Christ has done. All of us, all of us were included in the sacrifice that Christ made. Jews and Gentiles were people who came together to put Christ on the cross. And somehow in the great mystery of God, in the great mystery of God, Jesus said, welcome friends, welcome enemies. In this place where you both put me on a cross, I bring you together. And where you see different people and you have great differences in your titles, he said, I see you as one new people under God. Paul says to this church in Ephesus and to the church that's been following Jesus ever since, he said, what do you think we are? Do you think we can divide people in coming to the Father? No, he says we can't. Do you think we can have different places for different kinds of people to come to the Father? He says, no, we can't. Friends, if you think Paul is just kind of mealy-mouthed, you've got him wrong. If you think Paul is just writing about love and thinking that love is going to cover everything, you've got it wrong. Paul, when he writes this to the church in Ephesus and when he writes it to us, has got a deep sense of there are things wrong in the world and we have to move into those places and we have to speak into those places. In this sense, I would say, Paul, even though he warns us about getting angry, Paul gets angry, righteously angry. Because he knows the deep harm that's been done, not only to himself, but across the church and all across the world when people begin to describe and to differentiate because of differences. I, love, I really like something that... Um, that was written, oh, what's his name, Jim? It's on the screen. Yeah, Brian McLaren. He wrote, he wrote this, and uh, it was in Richard, something Richard Rohr wrote recently. And this, I think, describes what Paul is like. 
um, Brian McLaren said, we need a Christian identity that is both strong and kind. By strong, I mean vigorous, vital, durable, motivating, faithful, attractive, and defining. By kind, I mean something far more robust than mere tolerance, political correctness, or coexistence. I mean benevolent, hospitable, accepting, interested, and loving. So that the stronger our Christian faith, the more goodwill we will feel and show toward those of other faiths. McLaren was speaking to something else that's dividing us right now. Seeking to understand and appreciate the religion from their point of view. McLaren, in some ways, angry about how we divide one another between Christians and Jews and Muslims. He's asking the question, how is it that we can be faithful to the ways of Christ and yet embrace the people of other differences around us? How can we engage in hearty conversations? And we don't have to throw people over the bus or under the bus. How is it that we can be kind and strong? Paul shows that. Kindness and strength. I've got a question for you. What are you angry about? What's the righteous anger that stirs up inside of you? Where are you being challenged to be kind and courageous, strong and vital, and faithful to Jesus? I have a confession to make to you this morning. And I think here's the vital part for us, is that we need to make confession about places where we're angry. And then we need to listen to Jesus and dream with Jesus. And then we need to walk with Jesus. But here's the confession I have to make to you. In my own heart, in my own spirit, I've got a long, enduring anger right now with, with all of the conversation around sexual harassment. And I'm angry because I've got, to wear, I've got to wear a number of hats in my life. And when the sexual harassment stuff really began to blossom back in the fall, one of the hats that I wear is, is executive pastor here at Schweitzer. And I began to listen and have conversations with some of our staff, and staff that not only work here, but they've worked in other places. And I know that sexual harassment really has, has no boundaries. And so I felt compelled in, in conversation with some of the other people on staff that we needed to reiterate to our own staff and to our own culture some of the things that we placed within our employee handbook about how we treat one another. Not because we saw anything rising up, but simply because we saw things happening in the culture and the world around us. And friends, it, it grieves my spirit. It grieves my spirit. that we see that kind of abuse in the broader culture. And if you've read anything in Christianity today, this last week, you know we see it in the church and we've seen it in the church. It isn't right. It's wrong. I wear a hat of a dad. 
How do I have conversations with my daughters and with my sons? How do I have conversations with my daughters who are 12 and 9 and who live in a, in a great deal of innocence? How do I have conversations with my sons? confession in my own spirit is that that is, is a piece a conversation in our culture that's making me angry but then I have to come back to the place of okay what is it to dream with Jesus about this and what is it to walk with Jesus what's the action what's the courageous conversation Where, what does it mean what does it look like to be kind and strong. This weekend is, is a weekend where we celebrate the work of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, a pastor who is, who is a pastor in the South and who felt the pain and the agony of racism. And not just racism, but classism. Not just classism, but a, a divide that existed within the church itself. And a divide that exists still today. Some of the people around Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King said, Martin, they said, we see a lot of violence against our people. We see a lot of, of violence that exists. And they encouraged Martin to be like skunks. Let's return violence with violence. And Dr. King said, if you return violence with violence, then you only make the racism go deeper and you begin to justify it. And some of the people told doc, Dr. King, they said, just wait. Just give it time. Time will heal a lot of wounds. And in a passage that I really appreciate from a book, Why We Can't Wait, Dr. King said these words. He said, time itself is neutral. And it can be used either destructively or constructively. More and more I feel that the people of ill will have used time much more effectively than have the people of goodwill. We will have to repent in this generation, not merely for the hateful words and or actions of the bad people, but for the appalling silence of the good people. Human progress never rolls in on the wheels of inevitability. It comes through the tireless efforts of men and women willing to work to be co-workers with God. And without this hard work, time itself becomes an ally of the forces of social stagnation. We must use time creatively in the knowledge that time is, that the time is always ripe to do right, that the time is always right to do right. Martin Luther King, in, in the heart of his being, knew what was wrong, felt what was wrong, confessed what was wrong, and then he dreamed with Jesus. And on the steps, well, on the steps of Washington, it was recorded. It was said earlier, but on the steps of Washington, it was recorded. What is it like to confess and to dream and to walk with Jesus? As we think, as we watch in just a moment, some of those final words from the steps of Washington, 
Let me ask you, my friends, one more time. What is it that you're angry about? What is it that's being stirred up in you? Where do you need to confess and dream and walk? So even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that one day even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day down in Alabama with its vicious racist, with its governor having his lips dripping with the words of interposition and nullification, one day right there in Alabama little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted. And every hill and mountain shall be made low. The rough places will be made plain. And the crooked places will be made straight. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together. This is our hope. This is the faith that I go back to the south with. With this faith. We will be able to hew out of the mountain of despair a stone of hope. With this faith, we will be able to transform the jangling discords of our nation into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. With this faith, we will be able to work together, to pray together, to struggle together, to go to jail together, to stand up for freedom together, knowing that we will be free one day. This will be the day, this will be the day with all of God's children be able to sing with new meaning my country tears of thee sweet land of liberty of thee i sing land where my fathers died land of the pilgrims pride from every mountainside 
let freedom ring and if America is to be a great nation this must become true and so let freedom ring from the prodigious hilltops of New Hampshire let freedom ring from the mighty mountains of New York let freedom ring from the heightening Alleghenies of Pennsylvania let freedom ring from the snow-capped Rockies of Colorado let freedom ring from the curvaceous slopes of California but not only that, let freedom ring from Stone Mountain of Georgia. Let freedom ring from Lookout Mountain of Tennessee. Let freedom ring from every hill and mole hill of Mississippi, from every mountainside. Let freedom ring, and when this happens, and when we allow freedom ring, when we let it ring from every village and every hamlet, from every state and every city, we will be able to speed up that day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, we are free at last.